0: Okay, so story of masculinity. Well, I've got I've got four major points. We're gonna make some observations from creation, and then um, some observations from the fall. Which the fall would be when Adam originally sinned. Adam and Eve originally sinned. Um, we're gonna make some observations about redemption, and then talk about restoration at the end. So that's where we're going. Did you put forward or did I? I did. Oh boy! Okay. Okay. All right, working together. Okay, um, so observations from creation. Let's get going. First, Adam was tasked with working and keeping the garden. So if you guys have your Bibles in Genesis, go to Genesis two. And can you go to the next, the next slide? Yeah. No, not the next slide. Please. Yeah. All right. Um, so Genesis two, verse fifteen. It says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So it's just an observation. Adam was tasked with working and keeping the garden. And this was before Eve was made because right after this in chapter 2 God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone. And so he needed a helper. So but Adam was tasked with working and keeping the garden. What do want next? So, secondly, Adam was tasked with naming all the creatures and calling out beauty. Now, there's two observations here. One is uh, Genesis 2 verse 19. It says, uh, "Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name." If I stand right here, is that better for you guys? Okay. Um, that was its name. Okay, so um, you can see God told Adam to name every single creature. And so he was tasked with naming everything, but he was also tasked with calling out beauty. And it, it happens naturally right after this, because God puts him in a deep sleep, pulls out one of his ribs, and makes something more beautiful than him. And his response is, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So this is poetry. If you look at Genesis, this is poetry. It's beautiful. And he's calling out beauty. He's saying, I named everything. And it pales in comparison with this woman. This, at last, is bone of my bone, flesh and my flesh. It's beautiful. It's like God's created men to do that, to call out beauty. So um, Adam was tasked with working keeping the garden. He was tasked with, call, with naming things and calling out beauty. Um, the second thing that I want to draw attention to is uh, the word male in both Hebrew and Greek and what they mean. So, uh, in a book called Fully Alive by Larry Crabb, he talks about this, Dr. Larry Crabb. So in Hebrew, the word for male is zakar, which is different than um, the anatomical sex of man, which is ish. Ish is the anatomical sex, but this is speaking specifically about male. And male means to make an impact or to remember. And it makes sense with men because they usually carry the family line. So um, they're, they're making an impact by continuing the family line, right? They're remembering where they came from. Um, my name is Zachariah, and it comes from Zachariah, which is God remembers, um, which I just realized that when I was working on this. Um, so it's just, fine. Zakar is in Hebrew, means to make an impact, to remember. Secondly, in Greek, it is arson, which is to lift or to carry. And so uh, both of these together, I think mean this, God's intended purpose for males is to make meaningful, lasting impact in the world. That's what men are created to do. They're created to, the word, Zakar also means uh, to penetrate, to go through something, and we're we're created to make impact, to hold weight, to to move forward, and um, so God's intended purpose for males is to make a meaningful, lasting impact in the world. Meaningful because uh, He named everything, right? He gave it meaning, Um, and lasting because uh, He's to remember what matters and continue His legacy. But things went wrong really quickly, right? So let's let's go there. So this is what happened. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, um, well, before that, in chapter 3, God speaks to Adam before he speaks to Eve. Even though Eve was the one who spoke to the serpent, God comes to Adam first and says, what did you do? Um, now, when God, is, God, because Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they sinned, God cursed them. And he cursed all of humanity and said, from now on, things are going to be hard for you. Life is going to be really tough. So hear me, God cursed us. He actually cursed us, okay? So um, chapter 3, verse 17 to and 19, and, and Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So he's saying that it's going to be extremely difficult for you for the rest of your life to eat. You're going to have aches and pains. You're going to have to sweat in order to eat and to survive. And not only that, but your work is going to be futile. There's going to be thorns and thistles that grow up. And it's not, at the end of the day, going to matter. King Solomon says the same thing in Ecclesiastes. He says the work of man is vanity at the end of the day because it washes away. Secondly, we are cursed to decay. So in verse 19, he says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this is where we become perishable and we die. And he curses men and says, instead of making meaningful impact on the world that lasts it's not going to be meaningful, and you will die. It's, it's going to be the end. So God intentionally cursed us. Um, now, can you go to the next slide? So here's, here's what I think this means. God's intended curse for males was utility and decay, leaving males feeling terrified of being weightless. And I think every male in here feels this. And I'm going to give you reasons why. But what I mean by that is if our intended purpose was to make meaningful, lasting impact, and the God of the universe has cursed us so that we cannot make meaningful, lasting impact, but yet we feel the same desire that we felt before to make meaningful, lasting impact, it, it just it does things to you. And I think what it does is make you feel weightless. You're scared of feeling weightless, feeling like you don't matter, like what you do isn't going to Thing. And um, I think that it, it plays itself out in a couple ways. So if you can go to the next slide. Um, I, well, before, before you, um, I, one way you could think of feeling weightless is, if you've ever asked yourself the question as a male, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to um, get good enough grades? Do I have what it takes to whatever it is. Do I have what it takes? That's, that's the question. So I think we do two things to cope with this feeling of weightlessness and the futility that God's cursed us with The first is we attempt to overcome our worthlessness. Or our weightlessness. Weightless. So we attempt to overcome it. Um, so here's some examples. I think an example of attempting to overcome your weightlessness is boasting about your accomplishments. Wanting to feel like you actually matter. And so you find yourself bragging about yourself. I do that actually quite a bit. Um, the second thing would be throwing yourself into sports or academics. Or maybe you're not good at either of those things, but you found that you're really, really good at video games. Or it could be a job. You could say, I'm not good at of those things, but I really am a hard worker. Or maybe it's just a hobby. Maybe it's something that's like, I don't know if I get paid for this, but this is, I'm the best at this. This is the thing that I'm really, really good at. Think about that. What is that for you? Uh, and I'm going to share at the end, because um, we worked through as a staff team some of the stuff a few weeks ago, and I wrote out a statement about some of the weightlessness that I feel, and I'm going to I'm going to share with you guys at the end. But I I do this. I, I, th- I think um, I shared this with you guys the, the first night, but I like to use Jesus as a way to make myself look good because I feel weightless, because I, I want to matter. And so... I use ministry as a way to make myself better about myself. Um, if you've ever asked a question, or if you ever thought to yourself, this is what separates me from everybody else, I think that could be an example if you wanted to overcome joylessness. Are you possessive of other relationships because you're seeking affirmation from that person so that you feel like you actually matter? Perhaps, like me, you are forceful with your extroversion, to get what you want in situations. When I came on staff, I had to go to a counselor. Everyone has to go to a counselor. And one of the things he said to me was, he said, that, he said, I think your extroversion is part of your personality. He said, but I think you use it so that you can compete with people, so you can get what you want. Because when I walk into a room, I'm insecure that I don't matter. It's true. I, I still feel this. When I walk into a room, I, I'm insecure and question whether I matter. And so I use my extroversion so that I can dominate and control the situation. Because if I dominate, control, then I feel comfortable. I'm, I I do this. So because um, I start with weightlessness. Um, another example is perhaps you're not extroverted like me, but you're subtle with your intro, introversion to get what you want. And so you're like, I'm not gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna play the cool card, right? <laughs> it's like everyone's gonna like me because I'm not Zach. Um, uh, perhaps perhaps that's what you do. Maybe it's seeking a female's attention so you can feel like a man, because you feel like a man when a woman wants you. Maybe it's accumulating as much influence as possible, so you join all the clubs at school, you're in in everything, so you feel like you're in control of a lot of things. It also could be that in relationships, you're coercive, you're forceful, and possibly Even abusive to others, so that you can get what you want. And I would say um, I would never put myself in this category. And. I will do, and um, and I realized that just last year. So I want you to hear me. You may not think you struggle with these things, and you actually may. Um, another example of trying to overcome is lacking vulnerability, needing to be the man. So perhaps the first week of D groups, you didn't share everything. Perhaps you still haven't. Perhaps you never have with anyone. Because that would wreck your image as the man. Because deep down inside you do feel weightless and you know it. And the image that you're putting up is what's helping you not feel weightless. Um, lastly on this one, perhaps you do nothing that would risk your reputation. So you play it safe. Always play it safe. I'm gonna get the comfortable job, I'm gonna get the comfortable degree, I'm gonna play it safe so I don't have to risk my reputation. Because I'm scared of feeling weightless. Second way that I think men tend to cope. We surrender to it. So the first one, we're trying to prove that we aren't weightless to ourselves. We're trying to prove that. We attempt to overcome our futility and our weightlessness. The second way is we just say, well, nothing I can do about that. Books. I'm giving you a couple of my own. Um, Movies. Dating relationships. The list could go on. Um, Secondly, being emotionally distant, just apathetic and numb, because you're not going to be able to get over it. So why even try? Thirdly, uh, living to fill yourself with pleasure instead of serving others. So all of life is about just trying to fill the void because you feel weightless. Um, addiction is another one. Could be alcohol. Um, could be a lot of Addictions. Um, next, uh, you settle for giving into sexual desires, and this could be anything sexual outside of marriage. Anything outside of God's intent for marriage. You settle for that because you want to feel good about yourself, and so. Um, now, this could, I also want to say. Um, some of you in here may struggle with same-sex attraction, um, and are are men in the room, and I want you to hear: your identity is not your sexual uh, preference or your sexual desires. It's not your identity. I'm I'm putting this on a list of ways that we try to overcome the curse. I'm not saying. This is who you are. And you really need to understand that you are still a man if you have uh, same-sex attraction. The Bible says that same-sex attraction, um, that that living a homosexual lifestyle is wrong. But it does not define you if you have same-sex attraction. Okay, That's not your identity. And I would love to talk with you more about that, if if that's you. And maybe you've never shared that with anybody before. But I would love to talk more about it. We could give an entire... Um, talk just on that, and it worked through that. But. Okay, um, the next one being thoughtless, just kind of going with the flow and going throughout life, not living intentionally. You're always late to everything, you never take notes, you never plan out what you want to do, you don't really have goals for your life, you're just doing what people tell you. You live thoughtlessly. Yeah, you could die, but you play itself often. In just small conversations, not thinking, being considerate of other people. Um, the next one, being vulnerable but with no hope. So some people are really vulnerable. Some guys are really vulnerable, but it's kind of like with an edge to it. Kind of like, yeah, but this is you know, there's nothing, nothing really matters. It's nothing's going to change. And so I'm going to be vulnerable, and and I don't really believe anything's going to change. And the last thing would be lack of care for. Anybody. Okay, so, if you want to go to the next slide, what are the effects on the other gender? We said we want to talk about specifically how we relate to men and women. And here's we've got three that we think um, are, are big ones for how it affects the other gender. The first one is we think ourselves superior to them. In Genesis 3, when he's cursing the woman, he says you're be for him and he will rule over you. And this plays itself out so much. This is why abuse happens. Because men use their strength to get what they want because they don't think they matter, and they're trying to. So we think that we're superior to them. The second one is we think of them as objects and things. Even if Proverbs, it says, uh, Uh, He who's not a wife is not a good thing. And and Solomon did not mean that women are things. Um, He wrote another book in the Bible that's very clear, that that's not true. Um, But we, as males, and especially in our day and age with pornography and the accessibility of sexual content, it is so easy to make women merely an object instead of a human being. And the reason that we do that is because we want to feel good about ourselves. We want to be worshipped because we're so insecure. And if we can be worshipped by someone, if we can think that somebody desires us, then that'll be the ticket for us. And so instead of treating them like women who have dignity, we objectify them treat them like objects. And thirdly, We only interact with them when we are romantically interested, which only further makes them feel like objects. So we're going to talk about this at the end, how, how this should change. But women are not merely objects. They're not merely made for romantic relationships. They have thoughts like you, and a lot of them are better than yours. And they, they should be your friends. And we're, we're going to talk about that more, but they should be your friends. Men and women are created for unity because it reflects God. And a part of that unity is friendship. God created the world with, with friendship in mind. So, um, after this extremely dreary point of observations from the fall, how do we have any hope? So I want you... Uh, move on to redemption. How can we possibly have hope? And I I think that this I actually I was um, this really really struck me this afternoon. And I, I really I'm praying that you're able to see this too how beautiful this is. Um, we can have hope because of Jesus. So um, I want to walk through Jesus from the time that he was in the garden until the time that he actually died, because I think that he oh, I think he displayed masculinity so well and Women if you've been hurt by men, I hope this is redemptive for you when you see the kind of man that Jesus was And the kind of man that he is and men, I hope you see this too and want this. So um, Let's start in the garden. Can You go to the next slide. All right, so in the garden of Gethsemane so you can just read up here. Luke 22, 40 to 46. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Okay, so we'll stop there. Some of you guys don't know this story very well. So Jesus has just gotten done eating a meal with all of his disciples, and he takes a few of them out to the garden because he knows he's going to die. He already knows he's going to die. That's where he's headed. And he goes out to pray before all of this happens. So he's saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's actually a real thing if you're stressing if you sweat, blood. Um, and when he rose from prayer... Came to disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may enter into temptation, but you may not enter into temptation. Okay, so think about this. Jesus is in the garden. He knows he's about to die. He's already explicitly told his disciples that he's going to die. And they don't care. They don't care enough to stay awake with him. He's alone. And not only that, but he's literally thinking. In less than 24 hours, I'm going to be on a cross. I will be dying. Just imagine the loneliness that you would feel in that moment, and the agony that you would feel. And um, two things. One is, so he knows Judas was coming to betray him. But he didn't try to overcome his futility. So think about that. Jesus still... He was a man. He was under the curse. He didn't try to overcome his utility. And his utility is this. When Jesus betrays him, what is his life worth? I mean, we know the end, because we know he's going to raise from the dead, but if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then everything he did in his life doesn't matter. Do you see that? Like, he, it, it, it wouldn't matter. So all the people, all the crowds that followed him, all the people that he healed, it would have been like, that, that helped them, but... But what he set out to do, it, it wouldn't have mattered. And then, so he's feeling the futility of I'm going to die, and everyone's walking away from me. But he doesn't try to overcome it. He knows Jesus is coming. He could have ran. He's The God of the universe at the same time. He could have ran. He did. And what he instead, what he says is, Father, if you are willing to move this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. So he didn't also surrender to it. He could have just given up, right? He could have just been like, check it out. It's going to happen to me. My father wants it so. But he says, no, Father, your will be done. He's in the game. He's not leaving. So next, they take him to, he gets betrayed by Judas. Judas gives him a kiss. And they go to the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish authority. So you know the next slide. So then they led Jesus to the high priest. And the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony they did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, And you answer to me, What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. So again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And this is kicker. So Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So he knows what's going to happen to him. Those words are condemning, leading to decay, right? Leading to his death. And he's in it. He's not leaving. He's willing, even though there's pain, he's willing to move forward in it, okay? Um, So he did not attempt to overcome his futility. You know, it says that uh, he met with Pilate after this. Pilate was the Roman official at the time. And he says to to Pilate, I could have angels come down. I could have a legion of angels come down and wreck this whole place, and I would be gone. He could have done that, but he didn't do it. He stood death in the face. He stared in the face, and he stayed. Okay? That is incredible. He didn't try to overcome it. He also didn't surrender to it. He didn't curse God at the moment. Instead, he said, This is who I am, and I know this is where it's going to lead me. Okay? All right, next one. So the floggings. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, mocking him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloth and put his own clothes on him. And they let him out to crucify him. So he didn't try to stop his futility here. When they gave him the cross, he just kept walking. Isaiah says he's had his face like flint towards the cross because he had a purpose in mind. He was he was leading him to his death. Okay, He was leading him to what? To futility. Okay, so next. So, just imagine this. Jesus, to this point, by the time that Judas betrays him until now, every one of his disciples have walked away. Peter denies him three times. Flat out denies him Three times. He's completely alone. Nobody's with him. He's been beaten, and he's the God of the universe. Okay? He could have have bowed out if he wanted to, but he didn't do it. So, on the cross, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what he should do. So they took his garments, and he was naked on the cross. In the same way that in the garden Adam and Eve were ashamed, he Bore our shame on the cross by being naked he was ashamed and he was lonely he, and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying aha you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself and come down from the cross and the irony is that he could if he wanted to right he could have done it but he didn't do it he stayed there and lastly and in the ninth hour, Jesus cried of love with, lay, lay, lema which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So his disciples in the garden abandoned him. Peter betrayed him. He was alone to the point where even God had forsaken him. He was completely alone. And he didn't try to overcome it took it he stayed on the cross I think that this displays great masculinity because in the face of futility hear this in the face of futility he chose love This is beautiful. God used the intended curse for males in order to make meaningful impact in the world. So males were created to make meaningful impact. But we screwed it up. And God cursed us so that we wouldn't make meaningful impact. And the very thing that didn't allow us to make meaningful impact, God used to change everything. Because Jesus displayed perfect masculinity. In the face of futility, he chose love. He moved forward. He didn't try to overcome his futility. He embraced it. So that we could live. I think... I just think... This is one of the many things in heaven why we will say, He has done it. He is glorious. God is so beautiful. The story he is writing. It's so- <laughs> in heaven yet. So what I'm saying to you men is you cannot overcome your futility. You should not surrender to it. God will use your futility, the futility that you feel that things are hard and we're going to die. He will use that to make a lasting impact if you let him. And I think it takes three things to let him. The first is you need to be broken over every single way. That you have tried to either overcome your sense of weightlessness or surrender to it. And I'm going to share in a little bit some of the specifics for me and what's helped me. But you need to be broken over that. You need to recognize how wrong it is. You make yourself a God. You make yourself a God when you try and overcome your futility and it's wicked. Secondly, you need to embrace your futility at every turn. In work, in relationships, realizing that you're not enough, that the work that you do won't be sufficient. It's never going to be perfect. You're never going to get that grade that you really want to get. You're never going to be as good of an athlete as you want to be. I mean, the list goes on. And you know what the specifics for good. But you need to embrace it and realize that you're never going to be enough. And I think what, why is this is important. There's a really good quote from Larry Crabb in Fully Alive. So I'm just going to read it to you. He says, recognizing the terror in a man, his weightlessness, the terror, opens the door to pursuing life as a man. God's plan, be nothing in God's presence. Be nothing in his presence, other than his beloved so that he can do anything in you and through you that he wants to do. And so, if you do not embrace your futility and you try and overcome it or surrender to it, then you will not allow God to work in you. But if you embrace your futility and say, it can't be through me. Not my will, but your will be done. As Jesus said, he embraced the futility. Not my will, but your will be done. Then God... Will work. And finally, I said this already, but after you are broken and you embrace your futility, you're called to choose love in the face of futility. And I think what that looks like is sacrifice. Not going with your desires, not going with what you want to do, but living for the people around you. Making an impact in the world means that it's going to be hard because thorns and thistles is what our inheritance is on this earth, right? The curse is thorns and thistles. And so it's it's going to be hard. You have to go against your natural desires to check out or to make much of yourself. So to put it simply, we feel weightless and we repent in any ways we try to overcome it or surrender to it. We feel weightless and we embrace it as our curse, and we feel weightless and we choose love over ourselves. Okay, um, one more point and then I'll share my story. So restoration. and I think this is going to be how it is in heaven and I think that there's a lot that can be done here. How can we be restored to fema- females? Like I said, we think we're superior, we're not superior. They are fellow heirs of Christ with us, Romans 8:17. Fellow heirs of God, Christ, okay? When he's talking about sons in Romans 8, he does not mean men. He's saying, in that day, the inheritance was given to the sons. And so he's saying, all of us inherited. Galatians 3, at the end of Galatians 3, he says the same thing. All of us, we're neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all of us are in Christ Jesus. We get the same thing. Okay, They're fellow heirs with you. And the reality is, you're not superior, and many of the women in this room are more competent than you. You, you, you really need to wrestle with that. They, that's, a, that's a real thing you need to wrestle with and think about. Um, so they are going to be fellow heirs of Christ with us. And they have things to offer that you don't have. Secondly, they are not objects. They are fellow image bearers. In my Bible, I just noticed this. In my Bible, chapter 1, when Emma was reading, I wrote, we have great dignity which is actually really important for my own story, but we have great dignity. And then I have underlined male and female. Both men and women have great dignity because you're created in the image of God. So men, you just need to think about the fact that God created women in his image. Just like he created you in his image, he created women in his image. They have equal dignity. Thirdly, they are not merely a romantic interest, but they are sisters. The Bible uses the family analogy more than anything else in the New Testament to talk about the body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters, so they're sisters. And sisters are really enjoyable. I feel this. Um, I, work, I work with Elizabeth and Emma, and I enjoy them so much. And um, that I, I think that... Uh, It's one the like, if you, I I mean, I could give you a two-hour seminar on the differences between men and women, or you could just go become friends with a woman and experience it yourself. They're very different and very fun. Sisters are extremely enjoyable, and we want you guys to have friendship with the opposite sex that is not merely about you having a romantic interest in them, but simply because you enjoy them, and some of you guys are going to have a hard time with that because you feel it's secure and what I'm saying is it's a little bit of futility that you need to power through so that you can be friends with them. I mean I understand it's a real thing but um, they're really enjoyable. So uh, those three things. Okay so I'm going to share um, a little bit from a statement that I wrote a few weeks ago. We had a training on identity, and the guy who came in had us each write out an identity statement and talk about who we uh, who we are and um, how that should shape us. And this has actually been really helpful for me to, to think about, and so I'd encourage you guys to think about um, doing this as well. But um, before, before I share this... Um, we didn't cover everything tonight. There's so much more that we can talk about. So if you guys have questions, please uh, put them in the, in the thing. So all right. My name is Zachariah Tate Simmons, which means the Lord has remembered, has made me happy. I am the son of Randy and Francine, the grandson of Joyce and George Swan, and Rose and John Simmons. I'm the husband of Justine Lee, and the father of Jane Eliza, Grace Eleanor, William Tate, Sullivan John, and another precious baby in heaven. I am a glorious ruin. I am made in the image of God, which means I matter. What I do matters and holds weight. I have glory. As a man made in God's image, my glory is expressed through moving into the world as a husband, father, friend, and minister of the gospel in a way that mirrors my father's tender strength. I love to bless others and call it the goodness of God in other people's lives. I love affirming others like my children and mirroring God's grace and kindness as the Father. And I also love to call others to the goodness of God so that they might taste and see the glory of God which is why I love evangelism. I am also broken, and I constantly have a sense that I am a joke. I began believing this lie when I was four years old, and my cousins and siblings began calling me Mr. Cheeseball because I was scatterbrained, and I wore really thick glasses because I have a lazy eye. And um, my eyes were like, Um, It perpetuated itself throughout all of grade school as I struggled to focus my attention on schoolwork because I had ADD. In junior high, I was profusely made fun of by my classmates because I was argumentative because I was a Christian. Even in Christian circles, it was communicated to me that what I did wouldn't matter. An older mentor in my life when I was in high school once told me that he was concerned I was so heavenly minded that I wouldn't be any earthly good, which just made me try to get but I am not a joke. I know that I am not a joke because I am made in the image of God, and he is not a joke. Before the foundation of the world, he loved me, and he fashioned me in his image. And then, when all hope was seemingly lost while I was still a sinner, he died for me. My God does not think I'm valuable because Jesus died on the cross. No. Jesus died on the cross because my God already thought me valuable. And my value to him is that as a son, a true heir of Christ. He spared no expense for me to be in his family. He delights in me as a son who has an imperishable inheritance with Christ. So, I renounce my foolish strategies that make me want to prove I can take it seriously, that I'm not actually weightless. My worth is not found in using my extroversion as a way to control and dominate situations I feel insecure. It is not found through having grandiose dreams of myself, which I do, and playing them out in my head away from real life and how people could praise me. It's not found in my ability to think through things well. My intelligence, or my character being impeccable. It's not found in my success as a minister, as a father, as a husband, or even as a good friend. And, as I renounce my strategies I used to prove that I'm not weightless. I also renounce my belief that there's proof I can be taken seriously, the ways that I surrender to it. This belief makes me vastly between trying to prove my worth and removing myself from real life through distractions, like reading fantasy novels and keeping up with various sports. And those things are not bad, but my tendency is to check out when I, don't, uh, when I feel weightless. It makes me want to hide from life and be numb to the current pressures I feel. But my worthlessness is not proven by what I do or say. In the same way that I delight in my children simply because I delight in them, God delights in me. My children have done nothing to earn my affection. And my love for them is deep. My Father's love for me is also deep.